Good morning, Smack One. Good to be here again. Good to see you all. So we are continuing our series today on what happens after people die. And before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Please work in us powerfully through your spirit and lead us to recognize your voice, Father. Let me diminish and your words be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. There is so much imagery that we get about heaven and hell when we look at the media. From people having wings and playing harps on a cloud, to people sitting in a giant cauldron being poked by the devil with a three-pronged fork. How much of it is true? Scripture tells us that man is appointed to die once and after that, the judgment. But what happens after the judgment? Today, we are going to see two main points about what the Bible has to say about what's going to look like forever to those who are judged guilty and to those who are found not guilty before God. The first point, the eternal destination of those who reject God and are judged guilty for their sins brings us to the topic of hell. Now, in the eternal context of this being the final state, it is more accurate to call it the lake of fire rather than just hell. Hell is a generic term that we have come to use for the different words in Hebrew and Greek that are used to describe the location that one goes to after death. However, we can just continue to refer to it as hell simply because that's what we are used to and what our Bible translates it as. But for us to understand better, we are specifically looking at the idea of this lake of fire or Gehenna. Now, when this topic comes up, there will be many who feel uncomfortable because it is a sensitive topic. Some might even say that we should not talk much about hell because Jesus came to preach love and peace, where else the message of hell is one of damnation and hellfire. Mentioning these things to our non-Christian friends may be construed as a bad idea by some people. But did you know that of all the people in the Bible, who talked about hell the most? It's Jesus. So if we hold back, if we are ashamed to talk about hell, then actually we are ashamed to say the things that Jesus has said to people. Jesus warns us in Matthew that there will come a day when he will separate all people into two groups the sheep that follow him, and the goat that will be cast into this lake of fire. This warning then is a message that is meant to be shared to others so that people understand the consequences of not coming to Jesus. There will be a judgment day, and unless we respond rightly, there will be terrible consequences as people suddenly find themselves hurled into this lake of fire. Jesus said these things intentionally, so we have to see the topic of hell as something Jesus wants us to convey to others. So see that your sharing of the gospel to others should also include this warning. If we are ashamed of this inconvenient truth, 
then we will miss out on giving people this warning that Jesus himself has given. And therefore, the implication is we may not have even shared the gospel completely or correctly. It is good to talk about the sweet things, the salvation that Jesus brings, God's blessing on his people. But people also need to know what Jesus offers to save them from so that they will understand exactly what is at stake. How terrible is it if people do not understand that their choices in this life have consequences because we refuse to tell them about the cause of living as one wants to live. So especially for this Christmas season, as we have more opportunities to share the gospel, even as we prepare our hearts to share the good news, let us also remember the importance of sharing this warning about the lake of fire, which is the eternal destiny of those who are not saved by Jesus. But having said that, before we can share about this topic, it's good to see what do we know about this great lake of fire that Jesus has warned us about. In the Gospels, Jesus describes it as a terrible place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation paints it as a lake of fire and sulfur where there will be torture day and night. And this eternal fire is the destiny of Satan, the beast, and the false prophets. Those who live according to their own way and not living under God will also be thrown into this great lake of fire. Now, I know that there are some here who do not agree that the final reality of hell is one of literal sea of fire. And there is a good argument to be made that Jesus was using metaphor and imagery from Jewish culture to describe hell. And the reality of it may not be literally a lake of fire and sulfur. We can find in the Gospels that sometimes Jesus also refers to this place as the outer darkness where people will be cast out, right? So imagine that lake of fire, then it's dark. It's weird, right? Uh, but this implies that this place that Jesus is talking about is one that is outside of the city of God, where there is no grace from God, and going there signifies being cut off from God's protection. So, taking into account the different descriptions, we shouldn't hold too tightly to the idea of a place of literal burning pits. This language of fire and brimstone can easily be picture language for an existence where there is no longer any grace from God and those who want to be separated from God will really get their wish. However, we want to recognize that the point of the description is to help us realize that hell is going to be really, really terrible and devoid of all goodness. Literal fire or not, the description is trying to show us a most terrifying existence, one that is excruciating and without hope. So yes, the imagery may not be literal, but this does not lessen the impact of hell because it is without a doubt a place of eternal suffering that nobody would want to experience. Nobody comes out from hell. There's no sucker in hell. There's no hope in hell. 
But right now, regardless of whatever you have done, there is a way for you to avoid going to hell. And that is through coming to Jesus for your salvation. So if you are someone who have put your trust in Jesus, then don't worry. This message of fear is not for you. But if you are someone who's here but don't really have confidence in Jesus, maybe you're just here because your parents force you to. Maybe you're just here because it's December, Christmas month, show face. So you have not put your trust in him. And right now, as you hear these things, you will be feeling very, very uncomfortable. And I want you to know that it is fully your choice on where you end up. You can choose to listen to the warnings of Jesus and avoid that eternal torment by coming to him for your salvation, by placing your trust, your life in Jesus. Or you can choose to ignore this warning today, live life your own way, and pay the consequences as one day you take a dive into that lake of fire. This is the very reason Jesus came into the world. To give you an option. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, right? It's good news. Jesus did this because he knows you are not able to be righteous by God's standard and avoid hell. God is not asking you to perform. God is just asking you to submit and accept his grace. So if that is you, one who does not have trust in Jesus, come to Jesus today. Talk to the regulars here, talk to me, talk to any of the guys that you see up front here, that they should be able to tell you what this means. So next, as we move on, there are some Christians who have got a wrong idea of hell. And we'll be looking at two views today that don't get the idea of hell correctly. Firstly, we will look at those who believe in annihilationism. Now, this folk believes that once you go to the lake of fire, you die, and that's the end of it. Your torture is not forever, and once you're dead, you cease to exist, and therefore you are at peace. Now, you can already see the impact this will have on gospel sharing, right? If the consequences of rejecting Jesus is just one scary experience, then death, then people would stubbornly say, fine, I'm happy to go through that, rather than bend my knee before this Jesus who wants to control how I live. Now, the reason they give for believing that the, those in the lake of fire are annihilated may sound plausible if you don't think too hard. They would argue, Jesus came to give eternal life to those who follow him, so therefore, only those in heaven would have eternal life, and those in hell cannot have eternal life. So if life in the lake of fire is not eternal, then it stands to reason. Surely they are utterly destroyed in the lake of fire, and their misery comes to an end. And unfortunately, this line of thinking can become a source of comfort for those headed to the lake of fire, and has the consequences of reducing the sting of the warning that Jesus gives. So are they right? Short answer is no, they are wrong. It's true, Jesus does come to give eternal life only to those who come to him. But we want to look carefully at what eternal life means in the context of how the Bible uses the term. So if we look at John chapter 1, verse 4, we see it declaring, in him was life and the life was the light of man. So we see that Jesus come bearing life and that life was the light of man. 
So it is understood, right, that this ties into the promise of eternal life that Jesus comes to bring. But notice, he comes to bring this life not to dead people, but to living people. So we know that this life that Jesus brings should not be confused with what we think of as life, that is the animation, the movement, the vitality of the body. Life as we tend to think of it, tied in into a heartbeat, to brain waves, the capacity to do things. However, life in the Bible means something more than that. Life is something that living, breathing people that Jesus came to minister to can receive. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we see here that in Jesus is life and that life is linked to coming to the Father through Christ. So we can see from here that life as Jesus speaks of here is not talking about the force that animates us, but it has something to do with truly experiencing life by being connected to the source of life, God himself. Life, therefore, in the Bible is us existing in such a way that our vitality, our ability to do things have meaning because we are connected to God. It's not about just meandering around doing our own things that have no significance towards God's greater plan and finally then just dying. Right? So to have true life is to be connected to God. So if that's the case then, there's no real objection as to why people can remain in the lake of fire forever, be dead in the spiritual sense, and yet continue to exist and suffer for all eternity as Jesus has promised. In that lake of fire, the fire is not quenched, because that which it burns is not destroyed. Now, if the idea of hell as a short destination followed by non-existence have been a comfort for any of you, I'm sorry it's not. If it is, the warning in the Bible will not be as severe as it is. Next, another wrong understanding that some hold to is universalism. And this is even worse. I would say not even Christian, right? Universalists believe that since Jesus has come to die for all sin, then nobody goes into the lake of fire and everyone, regardless of their relationship to Jesus, will be saved in the end. They'll probably say something along the lines of, you know, it doesn't matter, God is still working in your life even if you don't accept Christ. So to the, the lake of fire, to the universalists, is just a place where Satan and his demons will be punished. So they will quote John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world and sent his son. And then they will point out, if God loved the whole world, he wouldn't have just saved some, he would have saved everyone. They will point to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, which says that Jesus came to taste death for everyone's sake. They will argue from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus came as the propitiation of not only the sins of Christians, but for the whole world. Now, these are good points. But ultimately, what we want to do, if they come to you and quote these things, is help them to see the verses surrounding the verses, the big picture of the Bible, and help them not to look at individual verses plucked out of context. So we then, in response, can point out, yes, John 3.16 does say, God loves the world, but right after there, 
It says that God sends his son so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So clearly it's not applied universally since life only comes to those who believe in Jesus. The verse in Hebrew that states that he came to taste death for everyone is followed up in verse 10 with the declaration that it is fitting that he does this so that he will bring many sons to glory. The language of many sons is always used to refer to the church. So from here we see, it's actually saying that only the church is saved, not every living human being. The verse from 1 John, which states that he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, is followed on by verse 3, which says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So here it's implied that it is in keeping his commandments, your obedience to Jesus, that we come to know him in order to benefit from this propitiation. Again, it's not universal. So Jesus coming to propitiate the sin of the whole world does not apply to everyone, only to those who come to know him. So taking all these things together, we can say that salvation is only to those who have accepted Jesus. And this means judgment will fall on everyone who has not. The idea of salvation coming automatically to all people is actually a wrong understanding of the gospel. So don't think that someone is going to be okay if they're a good person. I'm sorry to say in God's eyes, there is no good person. All have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And while it's true that the price that Jesus paid on that cross is sufficient to pay for every single sin that humanity has committed, this salvation from Jesus has to be accepted through faith. The eternal fate of those who do not come to Jesus for salvation is to go into the lake of fire for all eternity. So if we understand these things, then we can say with certainty that the Bible teaches us that the ultimate destination of all who are not saved by Jesus is the lake of fire. And there they will have to suffer endlessly without any chance of being saved. So do consider these things when you have an opportunity to share the gospel, but then you've pulled back because of fear. The danger that they are in is very significant and very real. And I know it's hard, it's awkward at times, but I do hope that knowing the weight of what hell is like will help you then to gather the courage to share, to be able to endure your fear, to be able to endure even the scoffings of those who share these things with. They need to hear this. Moving on then, we look at what happens on the other side of the end times. What is the eternal fate of those who are faithful to Jesus? Some believe we become angels, we sit on clouds and play the harp and they worry, I don't know how to play the harp. Well, this is however totally wrong. We know from scripture that we are promised eternal life and blessing from God in the form of an inheritance that is given to us. So what does that look like? Firstly, 
We want to see that God's larger plan is about redemption. Not just redemption of us humans, but also the redemption of the whole of creation from the stain of sin and death. Adam failed and sinned and brought in corruption of sin and death. And God's plan for the universe seemingly has gone wrong. However, God has always planned to allow for this to happen so that through Jesus, he can fix the problem once and for all so that his complete plan will come to fruition. And what's that complete plan? Romans 8.29 tells us that all things happen in, the way, in, in this way so that Jesus shall be the firstborn among many. So God therefore redeems all creation and he does it in such a manner that the end result is God dwelling with mankind. And we are redeemed in such a way that the redeemed mankind can call Jesus our brother and our king. So this is God's ultimate purpose in how he saves us. It is the solving of the problem of how a holy God can dwell together with his people in the perfection of creation and peace. You saw the beginning of this problem when Adam sinned. And you saw it again and again as the people were wandering in the desert. The people were hardened in their heart and went against God. This then is the ultimate solution that lasts to all eternity. So through Christ and what he has done, God now brings forth a new existence, free from the corruption of sin and death. And this is what we call the new creation. And we see a clear picture of this in Revelation 21. The, the key point of this new creation is that it's the old creation, but it's redeemed and now it's populated with humans who are united with God in such a way that they are finally worthy of being in his presence in the fullest sense of their eternal life. So we can note here that in the same way that lake of fire is more appropriate than hell when we're talking about the eternal length of things, the term new creation is more appropriate rather than heaven for this new state of existence. Though we can still use it interchangeably if we understand what it means. So we know we stay with God but do we stay up in that heavenly place in that sky? Actually, no. See, God's plan was always to bring down this spiritual reality of heaven to earth. And that's the point of the new creation. We see in Revelation 21, the coming down of the holy city from the heaven. And this, of course, should be seen as a metaphor, right? It's the book of Revelation. It doesn't mean that literally a city comes down like a UFO. But this holy city here is pictured as a spiritual reality in the Old Testament imagery of heaven. And this is going to be on earth. This Old Testament imagery encompasses the people and their state of existence under the governance of God, which is pictured in that sense metaphorically as an ideal city. However, this ideal metaphor now comes down to earth. So we see that it implies there will be a physical place to gather as God's people. No longer a metaphor, but made real. Since we are raised up in our glorified body like Jesus was, 
That means we too will exist in the flesh on a redeemed earth. So this would mean that we will meet others who are in Christ. So look to your left, to your right. You will meet them again if they are faithful to Christ. Not just for an hour or so a week, but for all eternity. They will be your partners in this new step of your eternal service to God. Now for some, you may have to suppress your groans. But have no fear. Whatever it is that you don't like about these people, whatever failures, whatever lack in their character or morals that you see now, it will be fixed. Because God has promised to glorify his people and make them perfect in their sinlessness. And not only will we see our friends and loved ones in Christ again, we will experience things. We will eat, we will enjoy the good things of the world, and we will experience the new creation in the flesh as we live under the authority of Christ in this new world. This new creation is going to be so much better because everything is going to be perfect. Which leads me to ask, are you right now prioritizing worldly things over serving God? If you were given a choice, going for mission in Africa or India versus going for an all-expense-paid vacation to Disneyland, which would you choose? Be honest. We know the right answer is to choose that which allows us to do God's work now. Because when you are in that new creation, that version of Disneyland there is going to be so much better than what we can get now. But there will no longer be people for you to reach out with the gospel anymore. Why? Because they're all burning in the lake of fire. So for those of you who have been doing this, but now you feel left out because you have committed to ministry things and you've lost out on so many things, take comfort, friends. You can lose out on your vacations. You can lose out on the comforts of this life, nice food, cool places to hang out, expensive clothes, a great career, big house, luxury car. You can lose all these things for the sake of the gospel. And the good news is, Actually, you won't lose out in the end. You will still get about to enjoying them all. And here's, here's a kicker, right? It's going to be even better than what you miss on the earth. Because what we have now is just a shadow. So when it comes to the things of the world, the things that calls you, the things that, that, that lures you, and you don't get it, don't feel for more. Don't fear missing out. Because there's limited time to do ministry of the gospel to the people around you, but eternity to enjoy all the good things that God will give you. So you can rest from trying to make this life your best life. Do what is urgent and more important, even if it's going to cost you now. So rethink the decisions that you make that stop you that conflicts with the works of ministry. You actually don't need to balance between living out your life now and ministry. Instead, now is the time for you to focus keenly on ministry. Now, you can take as much enjoyment in the world as you need, 
in order to keep yourself functional, to encourage you so that you're able to serve. So yes, go for vacations if you need it, but always put the gospel first whenever you can. And I promise you, friends, you will not lose out because God is able to deliver delights that will truly satisfy, unlike the things that you can get right now, the things that sometimes have such a hold on you. Nobody will enter the new creation, look back at their former life and regret, ah, oh, yeah, if only I had made more money, or I bought a bigger house or more expensive toys. What you will be looking on eagerly is to see if God will greet you with well done, good and faithful servant. And I assure you, friends, God is not going to look at how much wealth, how much prosperity and toys you accumulate, but he is going to look at your heart towards his work. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So do see if your life is rooted in the gospel for now and if the gospel is your true treasure that you're holding on to. And if it is not, if honestly you find that other things captivates your heart, wealth, accolades from people, position, power, listen to me, turn away from them. Learn to delight in the gospel because I promise you it is worth it. You will not lose out if you do this. Next, we see that in answering the Sadducees in Matthew 22, Jesus makes it clear we won't have marriages in heaven. While there may be some spouses who breathe a sigh of relief at this, there will be some who will be horrified because their identity is so rooted up in being wife or husband to someone. And I want to assure you here, this is not settling for a lesser thing. But somehow, what we will have in the new creation is greater than the marriage that you have experienced. So if you understand that marriage itself is basically an advertisement to show the world how Christ and the church will be united, then actually there's no need for that shadow when we will experience the fullness of Christ's love for the church, for you, when you are there. Now this would mean that we may no longer have the closeness and intimacy of marriage in the new creation, but we will not lack for meaningful intimacy and closeness. Somehow, the desire will be fully served through Christ's love for us, leaving us then free to serve the Lord with all that we have in that new creation. Now, the new creation will be led by Jesus himself and he will govern over his people. Now, we don't know the details of how the government would run, uh, definitely you're not going to be voting if Jesus stays in power. Uh, we don't know how Jesus will rule over things in a practical sense. The Bible is quiet about that. But we know that it will be so perfect that anyone who sees this new system, this new existence, will assume, wow, this place that God has built here is as if it came down from heaven itself because it's so perfect. And thus, that's why New Jerusalem metaphorically is pictured as coming down from the heavens itself. 
And so this also shows us, right, that there will be a gathering of God's people living under God's rule in God's place in a perfect manner in this new creation. So if you've done your Bible overview, that'll sound very familiar, right? And the Bible has been showing this picture repeatedly in various forms, starting from the Garden at Eden, then as a people who are wandering the desert, carrying God in the tabernacle to the church gathered under God, as we saw in the New Testament, until finally, on that day, when God makes all things new and we come to a satisfying end. And I say satisfying end because if we continue to look at Revelation 21, we will see that in this new creation, there will be no more sickness and sorrow. There will be no more death. Every tear wiped away by God. Life is found in abundance, implying that we can truly live in a right relationship with God. We can truly enjoy God's creation without sickness or aging. Now this may not mean much for those younger, but for those of you who are older, whose body is starting to creak, who's feeling the chains of mortality, you will see how sweet it is. And unlike this current world that we live in, this redeemed world that we're looking forward to will be heaven on earth, literally. Because God himself dwells with his people to care for them and to provide for their every needs. The Israelites, when they were walking in the deserts, their shoe did not wear out. Did you know that? And if God did that for such sinful people who are rebelling against him, how much more is he going to take care of you who he's washed clean, who he's called his children? Now, having God provide for your every need may make it sound like we will have nothing to do except to learn how to play the harp, but that is far from the truth. We see when Adam, uh, sorry, when God created Adam, that humanity was created for work. And so we know work is good. Adam was created to work the ground. So by our very nature, we will do work in this new creation. We will be caretakers of the world. So what happens in the new creation is a continuation of the theme of Adam's work which was corrupted by the fall, but now restored again. And this time, however, the redeemed humanity, living with God, will be able to work the earth, have dominion over it, under King Jesus in the right way. So I would imagine that there would still be jobs, each of us doing different things, but unlike the current world, with the trappings of economy and politics that ultimately comes out of sinfulness, there will be work in the new creation that is pure and untainted by human ego and greed. Now, scripture does not tell us much about how life would be in the new creation, but just take a moment and imagine with me what our lives would be like if we don't have to work to earn a living, but having been given an abundance to enjoy, limitless things to enjoy, we then choose to work because we want to please God. And there's no more sinfulness, so we will work in harmony with each other. No ego, 
no office politics, no backstabbing each other, no sinfulness that leads to unhealthy competition, unethical things. As stewards of the world, we will care about the environment, we will care about the animals, so we will work with wisdom, making sure that we care for the environment as much as we use it to glorify God. There will be no starving children laboring in sweatshops. No more people working long hours for minimum wages. Because our goals will be to serve and edify each other and no longer for financial gain. No longer to please our own egos. No longer to dominate over our fellow men. What a beautiful existence that would be. For those of you who dread the morning alarm bell, you know it's going to ring tomorrow, it's going to signify the reset of the week, and you're going to jump in into the rat race again, have comfort. There is a good end coming, and on that day then, you will look forward to work again. It's bad now, but hang on, and you know you're going to make it because Christ has come. And he comes to make this possible. Well, as much as I wish that I can tell you more to paint a sweeter picture of this heaven on earth, this new creation that God has promised us, I can't because scripture is silent on the details. But we know the most important thing. We will be dwelling with God without sinfulness to bother us, and then we will find true joy in this new existence. Joy that you have not experienced before. Joy that you will never be able to experience this side of existence. Joy that will last for all eternity. And so with that, we come to the end. Now I know that for some of you, despite the comfort of heaven, you will think of loved ones who seem destined to the lake of fire or having passed away without acknowledging Christ, you know that they are headed there. For those who are lost, I am sorry, but there is nothing we can do for them. You may even wonder, how can you have joy when your loved ones are lost? How can you be happy when they are in that lake of fire? The only answer I can give is that now, we don't know exactly how this will work out, but when we are raised up, our hearts and thoughts will be so conformed to God that we will love Him in a way that we don't love Him right now. And we will truly love Him to the point that we will see the rejection of Him as a terrible choice, a choice that requires separation from God. You may miss them, but just like how God does not want anyone to be lost, yet still allows people to go for destruction, we too will somehow come to accept it. And I know it's not much of a comfort right now, but somehow things will make, make sense when you are changed and renewed in the new creation. And while there is nothing that we can do for those who have gone to sleep without accepting Christ, Remember that for those who still have a chance to turn to Christ, there is hope for them. Don't give up on preaching the gospel to them. Don't give up on praying for them. 
Because friends, that lake of fire is not a place we would want anyone to go to, even our worst enemies. So don't let the concerns and fears that you have about people not liking you, about consequences to your job or your popularity, stop you from preaching the gospel faithfully. And not just the good news of salvation, but the warning of where everyone is headed towards if they do not listen to Jesus. At the end of the day, each person will have to decide for themselves, but may they decide after you have given them the warning. So let what you have learned today, the horror of the eternal suffering and the sweetness of eternal life, strengthen you then to put in effort into bringing the gospel into people's life. Be intentional, plan for it, rehearse, look for opportunities, do all you can to help people come to salvation. And of course, the end of the day, it's a decision that they make between God and themselves. Each must choose for themselves. And so, I will also ask you to look to yourself and the decisions that you've made and ensure that you have chosen wisely. See that the joys of heaven should be motivation for you then to hold firm in your faith, even if you are persecuted, even if you lose things by holding on to Christ. See that Christ is worth it. And let the hope you have for this new creation give you comfort, especially when life isn't going the way you want it to. Every tear will be wiped away. So hang on, friends. No matter what storms may blow into your life, Christ has come. And Christ will lead you into the new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. Have mercy on those here who are not believing. Help them to change, Father. Lead them to Christ. And for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, strengthen us, Lord, by your Spirit that we will uphold him all the days of our life, that we will make wise decisions so that we may see the fruit on that day. May we all here be received with you saying, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.